Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I want to welcome you back uh, to our podcast series for the journal Global Summetry. I'm one of the senior editors for this journal, and it's my pleasure uh, today to welcome uh, Joshua Busby uh, to discuss in the Summit Dialogue series the global efforts to limit uh, carbon emissions. Josh is an associate professor of public affairs and a distinguished scholar at the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas at Austin. Josh is the author of several studies on climate change, national security, and energy policy from the Council on Foreign Relations, the Brookings Institutions, the German Marshall Fund, and the Center for New American Security. He's one of the lead researchers in the Strauss Center Project on Climate Change and African Political Stability, and uh, he has also written on U.S.-China relations on climate change for CNAS and resources for the future. It's a real pleasure today to sit down with Josh to discuss uh, the full range of activities going on globally with respect to the question of the reduction of uh, carbon emissions. So, let me now introduce to you uh, Josh Busby. Uh, so it's a real pleasure then to welcome to Global Summetry, uh, Josh Busby. Hi, Josh. Hi. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's start with a quick look at uh, the Global Climate Action Summit, which took place in September in San Francisco. Maybe you can kind of fill in listeners uh, with what this particular summit was all about. Absolutely. Uh, and I had the good fortune of being able to participate. Uh, this oh, was uh, Governor uh, Jerry Brown's uh, swan song as he uh, left office later in the year. And he wanted to both uh, highlight what California is doing, but also use the uh, occasion to uh, catalyze uh, greater commitments from the private sector, subnational governments, and other actors in the lead up to the uh, Poland climate negotiations that were held in December. So, you know, California announced uh, decarbonization targets for the electricity sector, and a number of other U.S. states uh, made commitments to either reduce carbon emissions or ramp up uh, ambitious targets on renewables and. Uh, you know, a, a number of private sector actors uh, participated and made commitments uh, to either reduce their emissions or uh, make contributions on climate finance. So that was really the um, the impetus for the Global Climate Action Summit, both celebration of the governor's achievements, but also to try and use it to ramp up ambition on uh, okay. on climate change. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so, uh, as you're aware, our colleague uh, from Yale, Angel Shu, uh, was uh, very much involved with uh, with this particular summit uh, also, and she was quoted in the New York Times just before the summit occurred uh, by saying, but so far such pledges have produced more talk than action. What do you think of her reaction, at least in the in the coming to the summit itself? 
I, I largely agree with Angel. Uh, you, commitments by subnational governments and private companies are just that. They're commitments. So some, perhaps even most of them will be implemented if we're kind of being optimistic. But it's, it's in my mind, unclear how far these commitments can go towards meeting government's pledges to reduce emissions under the 2015 Paris Agreement. And, and I think it's, it's still early days, so we can cheer companies and mayors and, and governors making these commitments in, in the United States and, mm-hmm. and by comparable actors around the world. But the proof will be in the pudding. Do they follow through? Well, but, uh, you know, kind of reaction to that, I mean, is this any different than states making commitments through the Paris process uh, from these actors? And, and it's also the case that Angel suggested that, you know, kind of collective efforts, uh, groups of, of sub-nationals uh, and, you know, non-state actors getting together – provided a bigger impetus towards the reduction in carbon emission. I, I think that's, uh, that's a, a, an optimistic take, and, I, and, I, and I'm sympathetic to it. There are folks like Tom Hale at Oxford who have, right. have been documenting sort of the groundswell of subnational and private sector action. Uh, and, I, and I think that's, uh, you know, uh, and, and as I said in, in, in some other work, I think it's a complement but not a substitute for country commitments. So some people have looked at it as a substitute in the sense that, you know, after President Trump announced his intent to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, you have the We Are Still In Coalition, uh, America's Pledge, and others trying to ramp up ambition in response to the absence of federal government uh, commitment by the U- U.S. And I think it's... Uh, you know, it's helpful, but, uh, you know, when you have other, uh, uh, policies uh, moving in the wrong direction at the national level, that there's only so much that subnational actors, private sector actors, and, uh, and can do to compensate for the, the, and that's just in the United States. And I, and I think one of the things that happens here is that we tend to overemphasize uh, the the policy dynamics in in the U.S., but uh, I I think it's probably true in uh, in other places, even where the national cap commitment hasn't waned as much. That the that it's useful to have uh, uh, more actors involved in this space and and making commitments, because ultimately they're going to be the ones responsible for implementation, even if there's national sector or national government uh, policy in place. But um, uh, I, I I'm I'm uh, Closer to Angel's view that uh, that this set of obligations and commitments isn't isn't um, isn't a substitute for national ambition. And I take it then you uh, you wrote with one of your colleagues uh, from Insights in this case, Johannes Erpelen. Mm-hmm. Uh, your quote was the key quote was the research shows that. The, uh, the subnational and non-state action, this is Angel's uh, research, has promised but cannot replace ambitious national policy as the cornerstone of climate mitigation. So you're still there, that, it, that there has to be that national commitment, national impetus. Yeah, I think I think that's where I still am. Uh, I think Angel's uh, assessment for the U.S., that adding up all of the commitments by non-state and um, uh, 
subnational actors, if they were fully implemented, I think that would help the U.S. get about half the way there towards the U.S. Uh, Paris target. And, and, and she's done similar analysis with her colleagues of non-state and subnational commitments in other countries. And I think the findings are maybe roughly, roughly similar. Now, there are other studies like America's Pledge that are a bit more optimistic. I think if you, you, know, if you squint in the light just right, uh, but uh, that they think you can get you know, pretty close to meeting the U.S.'s Paris commitments. But they make some fairly heroic assumptions about full implementation and additional policy measures being implemented uh, in the U.S. And, and I just, uh, I'm, I'm not there. I, don't, I, don't, I think that there are enough signs of, of things happening and moving in the wrong direction at the federal level, that those kinds of signals uh, ultimately can, um, if not swamp, at least um, uh, set, set things back. So I, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I, I think, again, uh, a, a useful complement, but a, not a substitute for uh, national okay. level action. Okay. And I do, I obviously do want to get back and talk a wee bit before we end uh, this interview about the federal level, uh, particularly in the United States. But uh, we'll talk about some other uh, national actors as well. Uh, let me go to another uh, global effort, and it's been recent, and that was uh, the Conference of the Parties. And in this uh, case, it was a meeting of the COP uh, just uh, in early December in Katowice, Poland, um, uh, I guess the question is, what was the purpose, uh, the, the kind of mandated purpose of this gathering? And uh, from your perspective, how successful would you assess the actual uh, gathering itself? It met for uh, some significant days before completing its effort. Yes, uh, and I also got an opportunity to go to uh, the the COP in Poland and did right. a short write-up for the Washington Post Monkey Cage blog. But the intent of the meeting was to finalize the Paris rulebook or the rules governing how countries would report their emissions, their actions to reduce emissions, and for donor countries, their climate finance. And I think there was some modest hope going in that it would be a time for countries to increase the, their ambition on reducing emissions, to revisit their initial pledges of action and their so-called nationally determined contributions. But I think most yeah. observers sensing the political headwinds hope for at best a meeting that kept the machinery going on the Paris Agreement. And so mm -hmm. the, the meeting achieved an agreement on the Paris rulebook which I think was what was minimally needed to declare victory and go home. Um, now, there were a few hiccups. Uh, there were some issues that were kicked down the road, like accounting measures for carbon markets. I think Brazil hopes to sell credits for protecting forests to companies from other countries, whereas com countries like Germany see this as double counting, where they're getting credit for action done for domestic purposes and then to help companies in other countries meet their commitments. So that, that issue is... Um, been uh, delayed for further negotiation, but the broad contours of the rule book are now in place. And I take it that the uh, effort to uh, create the rule book is an intent. The intent is to be able then to compare commitments uh, on a common on a common basis, so that we can we can do that and also. Um, accumulate so that we can understand how much uh, carbon emissions have been reduced. 
Yes, I, my sense is that you know the initial intended nationally determined contributions, the initial targets that com mm -hmm. countries came up with, were pretty diverse in the kinds of commitments they made in terms of uh, some had intensity targets for reducing the amount of uh, uh, emissions per unit of GDP that was produced. Others had absolute emissions targets. They sometimes had different base years, sometimes different endpoints, 2025 or 2030 as kind of end periods. And I think there's some pressure to con consolidate and standardize and make them more comparable so that you can you know, compare country uh, targets right. to each other. So wh whether or not you know, countries really follow that, uh, I mean, some of the big issues that were at play were whether or not um, there'd be flexibility for developing countries. And I think that, you know, the position of the United States and other countries you know, was other developed countries in particular was, you know, there needed to be u as uniform standards as possible, particularly for the large emitters. And so if you're a tiny country that's very poor and has limited government capacity and has low greenhouse gas emissions, you know, the, the, those countries could have lots and lots of flexibility, but the Chinas and Indias that sure. um, have uh, significant emissions and rising emissions, they need to have uh, common reporting standards. And, I, and uh, you know, that was at least the de decla declaration of, of supporters of the agreement that that was what occurred at Poland, that countries like China and India will have to report similarly, and we'll just have to see if that's what actually happens. Okay, fair enough. Now, I, I take it uh, the next uh, scheduled COP, COP uh, 25, is, um, is set for Chile, even though initially it was, or originally it was scheduled to be in Brazil. Um, is there any particular issue or issues that, other than the obvious, that this particular COP is designed to deal with? Well, so recall that the nationally determined mitigation commitments start in 2020 and they end in 2025 or 2030, depending on the country. And there's supposed to be a kind right. of five, five year review process in 2023. Now, I think there's increasing recognition that the initial targets that countries adopted were inadequate and that progress on implementing those um, is, has not been enough. So the Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, Antonio Guterres, is continuing the tradition set by his predecessor and hosting a climate summit around the edges of the fall UN meeting in New York. And I, th I think the aim is to identify some big initiatives to increase ambition on climate. We shall see if that can be successful, but I think that would set the stage for maybe uh, Chile, Chile being about some new commitments. And, and that... I, there may be it may end up being a meeting of sort of leftover negotiations on issues like carbon markets um uh but right. i think uh the most ambitious perspective would be can countries uh find their way to make more ambitious commitments um and revisit some of their uh, earlier ones okay um, now, as I mentioned, in fact, originally, uh, this particular upcoming COP was supposed to be uh, in Brazil, and uh, the question immediately arises, we have an, a new government that is a new president in Brazil, he's a populist, J.R. Uh, uh, Bolsonaro, um, uh, and, the, and so one immediately asks, how big a threat uh, is he? 
in the context uh, of particularly the Amazon, uh, but more generally with Brazil uh, trying to meet its uh, NDC commitments um, uh, over the next uh, period. I think there's some significant risk uh, both to the Amazon and to Brazil's commitments and whether or not even it stays part of the Paris Agreement. Um, uh, Brazil successfully reduced deforestation by some 80% between 2005 and 2012, combining uh, satellite monitoring and rigorous enforcement. And I I had the opportunity to visit their uh, satellite uh, monitoring group in Belém, uh, in 2014, and it was just really amazing to see their capacity to rein in deforestation. But you've seen since then deterioration in the country's economic fortunes and rising political power of agricultural interests. And so you, there's been a significant reversal even prior to Bolsonaro's election. So I think he could um, uh, do serious damage to the Amazon and that those efforts are being contested by civil society, but it's hard to see how they can succeed if it's his desire to open it up to development in a return to sort of mid 20th century expansionism. I, I think the courts are going to try and stop him. But um, you know, if you're an environmental activist in Brazil, that could be quite dangerous. Uh, and I uh-huh. think that Brazil's efforts you know, to... Uh, uh, further degrade the Amazon would be damaging not only globally, but be counterproductive and massively harmful to Brazil, not least because I think forest cover, if I under, as I understand it, that scientists think that the forest cover in the Amazon helps uh, create the rainfall patterns for large coastal cities such as Sao Paulo, which has had near calamitous droughts in recent years. So uh, I'm very fearful. Deforestation and land invasions of protected areas were up in anticipation of his electoral victory. Agricultural interests have been politically ascendant. He's assigned responsibility of indigenous lands to the agricultural ministry, uh, which removes a bulwark against deforestation. His environment minister comes from rural agricultural interests. So on the whole, I'm I'm very concerned about uh, Brazil's trajectory, but it's also unclear what can outsiders do to help local actors um, uh, turn the tide. So, uh, I, I you know there may be efforts that we've seen in other countries like France to try to um, uh, put some impediments on exports, um, uh, exported products, but you know China is hoovering up. Uh, all of Brazil's soybeans now that there are right, um, right. Uh, there's a trade war with the U.S. and so the the leverage over Brazil from foreign trade uh, for you know Western countries is, is limited right now. Yeah, well, it's not a great forecast to say the least. Uh, let's <laughs> turn to <clears throat> to Germany. Um, as you know, Germany is one of the serious supporters of. Uh, climate change policy and the, and the reduction of carbon emissions, uh, a report actually which was supposed to have been uh, released in December but was delayed is apparently going to be released uh, February 1st and it's concerned with the production and use of lignite uh, which is popularly referred to as brown coal. It is of course the dirtiest of the fossil fuels um, that uh, one one can basically use. There's a concern, of course, that the report, partly because there was a significant component of the industry, including the uh, you know the mining industry, is is likely to suggest a kind of go slope 
policy on eliminating the infrastructure, um, um, or sorry, to eliminate uh, the uh, mining of coal. Uh, there, and as you know, there's quite a significant infrastructure and many jobs that are related to the coal uh, mining industry of lignite. So what do you see as um, likely um, German policy going forward on lignite? So I, I think this coal exit commission that's seeking a long-run strategy to get Germany out of the production of, and use of coal is, uh, you know, as you've alluded to, very contentious politically. Uh, some of the government's coalition partners and the Social Democrats of a core constituency mm-hmm. in the heartland of Germany in the Rhine-Ruhr area. I did a, a marathon some years ago in Duisburg, uh, and that that's uh, coal country. So. Uh, I think uh, Merkel's hold on power is more tenuous. Uh, I don't think the commission, as I understand it, doesn't yet have a detailed plan uh, in place and that February 1st deadline's coming up soon. My understanding is that the price could be high, that maybe 60 billion euros for economic support and job retraining might be required. Uh, But, you know, Germany Mm -hmm. made its Mm -hmm. job harder by scaling down nuclear power after the 2011 Fukushima disaster in Japan. So nuclear power is one of the country's main largely carbon-free sources of energy. And, you know, there's been long-running opposition to nuclear power in Germany and sort of the anti-nuclear forces were able to take advantage of that uh, moment in Japan, and, and so they moved away from nuclear before coal, and that that just makes their task harder. So I think the debates now are over how quickly and how much coal production can be taken offline by 2022, um, and whether a forest that is being felled for more coal production will be protected. Those have been some of the sort of flashpoints, and so we'll just have to see uh, – you know, okay. what the time frame is and whether or not that forest is protected uh, if they if they reach an agreement at all. Okay. Again, a kind of sober uh, assessment. Let me turn to an, another country, and this one your own, uh, and our good friend, uh, the president, Donald Trump, and his efforts to end the war on coal. Where do you see that, and where, do, uh, and in particular, the use of coal uh, or the elimination of coal in the United States? So, I think the long-run trajectory of coal-fired electricity generation in the U.S. is one of decline. Uh, we saw that again last year. The old coal-burning power plants are being taken offline. It's simply not as economical as renewables or natural gas. And I think I think there's also an increased appreciation of concerned about stranded assets that in time uh, coal is not a winning sector to be in for electricity generation. Uh, the Trump administration has tried to put his thumb on the scales to favor coal through the Department of Energy and some emergency provisions that would have favored coal and nuclear power generation. I think the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the FERC has thus far resisted such efforts, but some of the composition and the membership is changing. I think the only thing keeping coal sector afloat in parts of the country is exports overseas, which have been buoyed a bit since the president took office. Really? Uh, That's interesting. Um, uh, and what are the destinations for that? Do you know, Josh? I, I think Asia, uh, uh-huh. uh, that, that's my understanding. Uh, there are lots of, uh, uh, uh terminals on the West coast of the U- U.S., uh, coming out of the Dakotas and, uh, 
so I my sense is probably Asia, but I'll could take a look. Okay, uh, and and you know I get, continue to look at the Trump administration. You've already said putting the thumb on the scale with respect to coal, but. Uh, uh, you know, we've seen a raft of other executive actions and legislative regulatory changes that the Trump administration has at least announced. Uh, what do you think the consequences will be with respect to clean, the clean uh, air and, and the various other um, legislative and regulatory mechanisms? So uh, the president has repealed an agreement on fuel efficiency standards on automobiles that the Obama administration reached with automakers. Right. Uh, he's rolled back rules right. for coal, coal burning power plants through the Clean Power Plan, replacing them with much less onerous rules. He's rolled back rules on methane leakage. Now, most of these decisions were carried out under EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt and done in a pretty ham-handed way that, that leaves them open to legal challenge. I think the worry is that his nominated successor, Andrew Wheeler, who's currently being reviewed by the Senate for confirmation, is a much more able ideologue and will likely continue the same policy trajectory. So a two-term Trump presidency would pose a real problem for U.S. emissions uh, trajectory. Now, um, Mm -hmm. I think there was considerable optimism that the clean energy economy had some momentum that would continue uh, the downwards emissions trajectory the U.S. has experienced since 2005, but uh, recent reports suggest that um, that that downwards trajectory may have ended. Yeah, no, and and I was going to raise that question. This is a report that just came out oh, about a week ago. This is Rhodium Group, right? And mm-hmm. uh, that group suggests, and it's preliminary, but it suggests that America's carbon dioxide emissions rose by 3.4% in uh, the previous year, the biggest increase in eight years, according to their analysis. So um, is, is this a sign of, of where the United States is going with respect to uh, carbon emissions? So it's a little unclear. I think that was a provisional number that w- was based on right. th- three quarters and maybe yep. some estimates for the fourth quarter. It's consistent with other work that's been done. Uh, uh, the uh, global carbon budget, I think, also uh, estimated a rise in U.S. emissions, but maybe not by as much. Uh, there are some of the, right. some of the rise in emissions might have been due to especially cold weather, which increased energy demand in some parts of the country early in 2018. Uh, but there's also the sense that the policy environment diminished pressure on industry to clean up their operations. Uh, my my reading of the report suggests that emissions rose uh, in uh, in industry from manufacturing, which is maybe experienced a bit of a resurgence. Although there, right. there may be maybe we'll have a global recession uh, as a result of a <laughs> budget shutdown and trade wars. So some of these concerns, you know, might show up in reduced emissions in the next year or two. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Uh, we're seeing rising emissions in the transport sector, and that's a real tough nut to crack. Uh, and then, you know, yeah. when you have rising electricity demand, even if you have coal plants taken down, there's just a large enough increase in electricity demand that you know, you're getting a lot of that demand satisfied by natural gas and renewables, but the, the, the overall emissions trajectory is upwards. So I, I, I think that it's a, it's a little unclear if we see a two-year trajectory 
of increased emissions, then uh, we'd certainly have a, um, some cause for concern. But, you know, the increase in emissions on some level takes away a talking point from the Trump administration, which was, hey, look, uh, what we've done here uh, is working and, and we're rolling back regulations and emissions are still f- falling. Uh, most of those emissions declines happened before the Trump administration came into office, and now they right. can't uh, right. claim credit for deregulation uh, and uh, and falling emissions and, and going falling hand emissions. in hand. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Uh, and I take it that yeah, you've pointed to some of the. It's not it's not just the electricity sector, but it it goes to transportation. It goes to manufacturing. I, I, my understanding is both steel and and uh, concrete, uh, and, you know, that they're partly responsible for the increase in emissions as well, right? Um, uh, so that, um, uh, you know, I guess it's it's a, a palatable, well, not quite palatable, silver lining kind of thesis, right, that you're putting forward, which, which kind of takes me to uh, the IPCC report, the recent one, um, uh, this is the Intergovernmental Panel on uh, Climate Change, which suggested, you know, lots of conclusions, but, you know, basically saying that there had to be significant reductions and indeed very significant reductions, roughly 60% drop from today's level in 12 years. Now, my friends in, uh, some of my friends, and I'm sure your friends too, in the environmental community, are concerned that, you know, uh, this kind of portrayal um, by the IPCC, in effect, can generate real despair and that, you know, if people think that it can't be done, they're just going to stop. So how do do we deal with this uh, problem? Well, let me say a word about the... um the IPCC special report and this issue of despair more broadly. So the 1.5 degree target was adopted in the Paris Agreement as an aspirational target at the bequest of advocates in developing countries. And the stronger political target that has deeper support from states around the world is to prevent uh, global temperatures from increasing two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And I, and I think the 1.5 degree special report this summer basically said that attaining the 1.5 target is further and further out of reach as time goes by. And, and I'm not sure right. that many analysts, analysts ever thought it was really attainable given current trajectories and political realities. Um, I think there'd likely have to be some overshoot and then negative emissions later on with some technologies taking carbon out of the air to realize 1.5. Now, average global temperatures have already increased 1 degree Celsius or 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. And some analysts think we could trip the 1.5 degree mark by 2034. And right now, we're not on track to keep the 2 degree target. At current rates, average global temperatures could be as high as 3 or 4 or 5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels um, by the end of this Mm -hmm. century. Now, that that gives people, you know, um, a feeling of despair. Um, And... And yet there's a huge difference between two and three or between two, three, four and five. Because if we if, if we throw in the towel and we end up at five, it's could mean the end of human habitability, not 
on the planet as a whole, but over large parts of the planet, coastal areas, low-lying island nations. And so I don't think giving in the towel is an option. We, we may not be able to uh, constrain emissions below uh, two degrees, um, but mm-hmm. if we were between two and three, our children and grandchildren would have some chance of a decent life on this planet. Um, so I think that that's the struggle that we're in is not to, you know, not to because there's these are artificial thresholds of, of two degrees uh, signifies dangerous climate change. Well, you know, if we don't get to two degrees, but we get to two point five, I, I mean, the, the, those that that materially matters if if the alternative is onwards of five degrees Celsius increase over pre-industrial levels by 2100. And so we right. we just have to, uh, you know, buck up and get the job done because, uh, you know, our children and grandchildren will ask, where were you when you had an opportunity to make a difference? And so I, I, I think, you know, it's the striving and, and the strategic action that's intended to get us on the right path is, is what's required. You know, where we exactly end up, it's unclear, but that's the, that's the, that's the life and struggle that's worth living. Makes sense. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, one could take that view by, by looking at the IPCC report and maybe, you know, there's a need to uh, temper uh, some of that, you know, for for reasonable folk who wouldn't have, uh, you know, a real sense of these various gradations and the impact that that would have. But, you know, in doing the rounds, we've looked at some of the difficulties, Brazil, uh, the United States, uh, coal production in Germany. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess the qu- the question you ask yourself is: Is that global effort, notwithstanding you say you've got to keep marching along, but is that global effort faltering? Meaning that you know there was a lot of enthusiasm around the Paris Agreement and the notion of a bottom up you know process, which um, uh, would uh, enable individual uh, states, leaving aside for the moment, you know, the sub-state and the non-state actor groups, um, but that the, that it would enable them to, you know, kind of move forward and it, through peer uh, process examine commitments of other states and move forward towards the goals of at least to maybe, you know, below that if possible. But the question is now whether or not that model that we've seen is really adequate. Right. I, I think that's a, a fair question. Uh, I think there'll be another global moment uh, when there'll be heightened ambition again. And that, that requires um, a different set of, of leaders, to be honest, in places like the United States. Uh, but everybody knew that the Paris co- uh, commitments were not enough to meet the two degree target. You know, the aim was right. to make some commitments, gain some positive experience, and then ratchet up ambition over time. However, Donald Trump got elected, other countries like Brazil and Australia are backsliding, and the trajectory is now moving in the wrong direction. And even countries nominally committed to the Paris Agreement, like China, are, are seeing strong emissions growth after a few years of flat emissions. So, That's right. yeah. so you know, I. I um, as I wrote in a piece in Foreign Affairs over the summer, this issue isn't going away and there'll be increased appetite and demands by the public for action. And so there'll be a time when the when it's ripe 
for uh, global momentum to move in the right direction. Now, we're not there right now, but we can take some practical steps in the meantime to prepare for it and to try and identify some uh, uh, targets of opportunity for either action now um, while we wait for leadership to change or action now that'll, uh, that'll lay the ground for those changes to be enacted when the, the right people uh, are, uh, are in office. So, you know, uh, in a report I did with Nigel Purvis for the Atlantic Council last fall, we identified five areas for potential progress. One is to uh, have a renewed effort to uh, use natural climate solutions uh, to reduce emissions. So some 30% of emissions reductions that are needed uh, to uh, keep below two, two degrees uh, by 2030 can come from the land use sector. So that's uh, in forests and improved agricultural practices. Right. And so there's a large, large effort in that space that's ongoing uh, and more can be done in the meantime. Uh, a second area is uh, a, 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 an alliance of forwardly leading uh, countries uh, that will set uh, ambitious uh, uh, mid-century decarbonization goals. So kind of a front-runner uh-huh. alliance. And there are countries that are, that are making ambitious plans in that direction. And, and there are sort of sub-goals under that, like the Powering Pass Coal Alliance, that there are countries right. that are commi- right. committed to ending coal production. And so that alliance... Uh, hopefully will grow with more and more members and more and more countries of uh, of significance uh, part to part of that effort uh, an extension of that yeah. is the sort of electrify everything um, uh, 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 impetus that's beginning in the transportation sector uh, uh, starting you know, with electric vehicles and there has to be a global compact to scale up electric vehicles to uh, uh, edge out. Uh, so if we're going to have large-scale renewables production uh, displacing coal, uh, then we have an opportunity to see the end of the internal combustion engine. Uh, and there are countries that are making uh, 2025, 2030 commitments that say all new car sales after this date have to be uh, uh, electric. And, uh, and, we, and we can see uh, China uh, seizing the manufacturing advantage in the space and deploying them uh, domestically, right. starting right. with uh, bus fleets. But we, we, and we can see other countries like India trying to figure out, is this something that they can do with their three-wheelers or with other kinds of, of, uh, of uh, transportation options? And, and so I think there's a real opportunity here in the transportation sector uh, with uh, uh, scaling up of electric vehicles, but there, you know, lots of issues over critical minerals that need to be worked out. Um, uh, a, a fourth area that we talk about is an air pollution initiative to address uh, problems in Asian cities, in particular. You know, we right. we've often talked about climate change may produce co benefits for other problems like air pollution. Well, we have the logic backwards. Air pollution efforts. Uh, may produce co-benefits for climate change. Um, and that uh, air pollution driver, I'm just back from uh, India, and if you, uh, in Mumbai, and in Bhopal, and in Delhi, the air pollution is intolerable. Now, there are diverse causes, and it's not just you know, climate-related factors, there right. are climate-enhancing right. factors that are involved, but 
if you can uh, use the air pollution uh, issue as a frame to command the attention of decision makers to scale back coal and to decarbonize the transport sector, that will produce appreciable gains for climate change and will enhance, more importantly, human health for the tens of millions, hundreds of millions of, of people who are now affected by uh, dirty air and losing years off their life. And the last thing that uh, Nigel and I write about is an effort to encourage China to green their operations at home and their Belt and Road initiatives abroad. Uh, right. China is now responsible yeah. for 28% of global emissions. And what China does or doesn't do really matters uh, more than what the United States does these days. And so there have to be redoubled efforts to put pressure on China to clean up their act. Well, and I take your point on China. There's being, you know, China has been relatively positive. But if you, you know, if you take a deep dive, one of the problems, of course, is that while the national government uh, very serious about trying to, you know, cap emissions, uh, there's this constant tension in China with the provinces and the local governments, and that relates to the classic problems of jobs and and uh, production, and so. You know, um, uh, part of the issue in looking at China is you got to go beyond the national government, right? If you really want to see, if you really want to see serious um, advances in in China, right? Absolutely, those those tensions uh, are are real in China. They're real in. India and the U.S. Sure. Now, now, China does have more capability when push comes to shove. If it wants to do something, it can impose uh, policies from the center uh, more so than than India or the United States. So uh, we did a sectoral analysis in energy research and and social science on on sectoral emissions mitigation opportunities. But I think the geography of emissions mitigation is something that we need to pay a lot more uh, attention to. Uh, but uh, you know the the uh, even as China's uh, commitment to reducing emissions at home has improved, uh, they uh, look like they're rewarding some of their construction companies with yeah. uh, uh, contracts to do more of the same in their near abroad, and I think that's a real problem. So one of the interesting questions is: under what circumstances would they decide not to build new coal plants abroad? In uh, in mm-hmm. in neighboring countries in Asia, or even as far away as like Lamu, Kenya, where uh, a plant coal plant is uh, uh, underway, I, I think that that uh, what would be the persuasive dynamics that would uh, ultimately convince them that those aren't good investments uh, and counterproductive. Uh, and I'm I i do not know the, quite the answer to that yet, but something I'd like to look more into. Yeah, that that makes. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I guess I, I wanted to end by, you know, you, you said a, a potentially moving the Arctics by, uh, by you know, having a um, kind of leading group of countries. It, you know, I, I would have normally suggested Germany. But so I guess the question is, who do you think are prime candidates for the for this leading uh, coalition? It's the small countries in the you know Scandinavia uh, right now. I mean, uh, I, I would have said the United Kingdom, but uh, something something's happening over there. I, I can't quite put my finger on it. Um, 
so, uh, you know, the, their, their Brexit negotiations are making them uh, less helpful as a player in this space. So, uh, you know, it, uh, yeah. it's hard to find uh, candidates that are uh, both uh, large emitters in their own right and uh, right. committed to taking these right. actions. And so... Uh, that's uh, all the more reason why advocates for uh, change um, uh, have to organize and press for elected leaders who are sympathetic to their views. Because, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, under Donald Trump has pledged to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, but he cannot formally withdraw until November 2020, literally the day after the next presidential election. And so that's right. Uh, if he's not reelected, the next U.S. president could be right back in and uh, and and you could have global leadership uh, reestablished. Maybe there'll be a second referendum in the U.K. and the and <laughs> and the U.K. will end up staying in the European Union. Stranger things have happened. And so uh, for advocates of vigorous action on climate change, you just have to um, uh, mobilize, organize, uh, stay the course. Think strategically about appropriate actions, and and hopefully uh, when 2020 comes around, we'll have a more sympathetic leadership uh, representing us. In the United States, you mean? Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I really want to thank you, Josh, for taking this time to, to kind of roam through some of the issues of, uh, of global carbon emissions. Uh, I really appreciate it, and thanks for joining us. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to the Global Summitry Podcast. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.